0: This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So with that in mind, producers credit shout outs to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtafer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we're going to be talking about some very recent current events, namely the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and its recent end. Thousands upon thousands of Armenians are fleeing the Nagorno-Karabakh region as Azerbaijan officially claims the territory. Mark Movzevsian, director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's University, joins us to discuss the ethnic cleansing happening against Armenians in that region and the role that great power competition has played in all of this as well as his criticisms of the U.S. response and why U.S. foreign policy hasn't been more interested in Armenia. All that more on this edition of Parallax Views, and now let's get right to it with Mark Movzevsian. A quick note that this was recorded uh, relatively on the fly. It was put together very quickly, so I did not have as much prep time for this episode. If I stumble over a word or two, my apologies. But let's get to the conversation. Welcome to Parallax Views. Mark Mavestian, I, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Uh, co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's University Law School and author of a recent piece in Compact magazine entitled The Second Armenian Genocide. How are you doing today?
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Mark, if you could, what is happening right now with Armenians in what used to be known by them as the Republic of Artsakh, Uh, Could you talk a little bit about the latest developments in that?
1: Yeah, sure. So the latest developments, which have transpired just in the last couple of weeks, um, amount to an ethnic cleansing of the region. The region is home to about 120,000 Armenian Christians. Uh, Last week, uh, the Azeri government launched a blitzkrieg attack on the region, which it it had actually been starving For nine months before that, so there was very little, there was no food, there was no, very little gas, very little of anything. Um, There was, you know, the the residents had only small arms. The Russian peacekeepers who were tasked with protecting them stood down for reasons that you and I can discuss. Um, And as a result of that, the Artsakh, well, Armenians call it Artsakh, Uh, the wider world knows it as Karabakh. Um, the Karabakh government fell, um, and Armenian Christians realized they really had no hope to be integrated into Azeri society, and so they've decided to flee. And as of this morning, the numbers I saw were something like 80,000, maybe, refugees have come across the border. But, but JG, you should know that this struggle, which has kind of blown up in the last couple of weeks, actually goes back decades, years, decades, even, even centuries. So it's I was going longer... to say this
0: was uh, like the third conflict involving the area.
1: Yes. Well, depending how you count, right? So let me just give you a kind of, uh, maybe I should give your listeners a background. And, and I should say a friend of mine said about that piece that I wrote that he gave it a compliment. He said it was it was not neutral, but it was objective. And so your listeners should know that's kind of how I look at it. I am Armenian. Uh, I'm not neutral in this, but I'm also trying to be as objective as I can be about what's going on. And I think I think I can be. So uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, which Armenians call Artsakh, this is a region in the South Caucasus, which has been populated by Armenians really for for centuries, going back many, many centuries. Um, There are fourth century churches there dating from the 300 AD AD period. Um, Armenians have been there as the majority in that region ever since then. In 1920, when the Soviet Union was formed, Joseph Stalin assigned that region in the South Caucasus to the newly formed Azer- Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic. There had never been an Azerbaijan before that. This is, a, this is a creation of the Soviet Union. He assigned that region to Azerbaijan, and he assigned another region, actually an exclave on the other side of Armenia. Armenia was also part of the Soviet Union, to Azerbaijan as well. He did this largely as a divide and conquer strategy in the South Caucasus, which actually worked pretty well. It made people sort of, you know, pitted groups against each other. At the time, Karabakh was overwhelmingly Armenian, Armenian Christian. Uh, Azerbaijan is predominantly uh, Turkic and Muslim. So that was Stalin's Stalin's goal here. At the time, uh, the Armenians in Karabakh objected, but they really had no choice because this was the Soviet Union. They were assigned there as an autonomous region. When the Soviet Union broke up, the Karabakh Armenians once again started agitating for uh, independence from Azerbaijan, which, under international law, they had a right to do. They had never been there; haven't been in Azerbaijan. It was part of the Soviet Union, so they were saying, "Okay, we now want to be separate from that." That movement was ruthlessly suppressed by uh, Azerbaijan. This led to a brutal war, which also drew in the country of Armenia, which is neighboring Azerbaijan. Something like. I think scholars say 30,000 people died. There were were brutalities and atrocities on both sides in that war. At the end of the war, the Armenians of Karabakh controlled their territory and some surrounding regions, which they claimed as a buffer zone that they were going to use as ultimately part of the negotiation to end the hostilities. Uh, Peace never occurred. There There was a fragile ceasefire for like 30 years or so. All the while, Azerbaijan, which has gas reserves, was able to build up its military with support from a lot of the great powers, including the United States, which saw Azerbaijan as a kind of uh, check on Iran and a check on Afghanistan. It was part of the global war on terror that was announced. And over time, the Azeris built up a huge military, Turkish weapons, Israeli weapons, American weapons, Russian weapons. And they were able in 2020 to retake in another brutal war, were able to retake all the surrounding territories and some of Karabakh itself. Now at the time, three years ago, Russia uh, uh, accepted peacekeeping responsibilities for this and said, okay, we will we will patrol this. We will keep a road called the Lachin Corridor, which went from Karabakh to Armenia. We'll keep that open to allow there to be access to the outside world. And then we will eventually come to some kind of peace arrangement. That's where things were uh, three years ago. So over the last three years, um, you know, it's interesting. So so the United States foreign policy establishment and especially the neocon movement portrays Armenia as, you know, Russia's ally. And they portray... I, I was going
0: to say something I always hear is, oh, that, you know, Armenia is just a puppet state of Russia.
1: Yeah. So I'll tell you about that. So, so maybe we should go back before 2020 then. So in 2018, Armenia elected a pro-Western prime minister called Nikol Pashinyan. And Pashinyan has made no secret of his desire to get out from under the Russian thumb and at least balance at least balance Armenia's foreign relations with Russia and with the wider world. Um, the Russians don't like that at all, of course. And uh, one argument is that the war happened in 2020 because Russia gave the green light to Azerbaijan, saying, okay, it's time to punish these Armenians who are you know, flirting with the West, let's send them a message. In any event, after 2020, For sure, Russia has been tilting towards Azerbaijan. So um, first of all, they have not protected Armenia, even though that even though Russia has treaty obligations to Armenia, when Azerbaijan has made border incursions, the Russians have stood down. They haven't done anything. Um, Armenia purchased something like four hundred million dollars worth of weapons from Russia after 2020. Uh, The weapons have never come and the Russians won't give the money back. And then, especially recently with Ukraine, the Russians really can use Azerbaijan. Baku is very valuable for Russia because of the gas reserves, because of the fact that Azerbaijan purchases Russian, Russian gas quietly, which then enables it to be resold and evade Western sanctions. Um, uh, Russia and, and Azerbaijan and, back, and uh, Iran, excuse me, coordinate on transport infrastructure. So there are lots of things Azerbaijan can offer. Armenia can offer very little, frankly, not to Russia, not to the outside world. It doesn't have a lot of resources. It's very small. Uh, And so Russia has been quite happy to make deals at Armenia's expense, at its its allies' expense. So the Armenians are kind of tired of that too. And they have been increasingly looking to Europe and to the United States and to India, by the way, as as other possible security partners. That has really infuriated the Russians. And I think you could look at what happened this week as uh, an attempt by Russia to destabilize this pro-Western government in Armenia, right? Because, okay, now Karabakh has fallen. Now there are 80,000, 100,000, 120,000 refugees going to come across the border. That will destabilize Armenia, and perhaps Armenia will now come back to the Russian fold. That, I think, is kind of So when you hear in the kind of mainstream press or you hear repeated Well, Armenia is Russia's ally, that is, I would say, at best, an oversimplification of things. And frankly, right now, the mood in Armenia is very anti-Russian because they say the Russians haven't protected us. They had treaty obligations and they've they've cut us loose. So why
0: is there that sentiment? Because I've seen in mainstream media, is it just a matter of, you know, Azeri propagandists, um, Azeri lobbyists pushing that line? about Armenia? what What's the reason for this idea that, oh, uh, the Armenians are just the the puppets of Russia? why didn't people in the U.S. move past that, I guess?
1: Well, look, I don't I don't think it's entirely incorrect to say that Armenia was a strong ally of Russia. We were, Armenia was part of the CSTO, is part of the CSTO, which is the poor man's answer to NATO. It is the Russian security uh, security treaty organization. Um, much of Russia, much of Armenia's infrastructure is controlled by Russian interests. Armenia has been traditionally very, very close to Russia. Now, now, so now to answer your question, that's one answer, which is yes, Armenia has been close. Now, why? Well, because really there's no other game in town. I mean, Armenia is surrounded by Turkey and Azerbaijan. Turkey committed a genocide against Armenia hundred years ago and, and would like nothing better than for Armenia to be gone so that it could have a land bridge to Azerbaijan and the Caucasus the azeris uh, in their in their mainstream in their media which is all government controlled repeatedly refer to armenians as a cancer etc there's not a lot of allies for armenia in the region so armenia has been very close to russia but that has been changing over time because of the things that i'm telling you so if you ask why is this being repeated part of its inertia it's old news uh, and part of it frankly is azeri and turkish lobbying i mean i think there are think tanks in washington which clearly are I don't know, they're parroting a line. I, I think it has to be because of support from those countries. It's If it was true, it is no longer the case that Armenia is simply an ally of Russia. Now, can I say just one, one more thing, JG? Which is, so far, the West has not really responded to Armenia's desire to be rescued from this relationship. You know, so, um, you know, uh, Armenia has been trying to pivot. Um, the United States and Europe They offer a lot of moral support, a lot of rhetorical support. There are some EU monitors now in Armenia, but there hasn't been real support in the sense of, for example, sanctioning Azerbaijan. That has not happened. So it's sort of unfair to blame Armenia for having been close to Russia historically, when Russia was the only great power that was willing to protect Armenia, and also when your government is also not responding when Armenians are trying to diversify things.
0: I want to talk about a a little more about the U.S. in this regard. Uh, The response has been uh, underwhelming, in my opinion. Uh, You know, I know we had the Biden administration sending these sort of letters mourning the loss of life. I've seen the tweets from people like Samantha Power of uh, Responsibility to Protect fame. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about what you've seen from the response from movers and shakers in Washington, D.C.?
1: Yeah, sure. I will talk about the Biden administration in just a bit, but I I want to avoid singling out the Biden administration because this has been, unfortunately, the policy of the U.S. going back to the second Bush administration, to the GW Bush administration. So just to give your readers some background. So um, there is a congressional law, the Freedom Support Act, a statute which prohibits the United States from giving military assistance to Azerbaijan while Azerbaijan is engaged in aggression against Armenians in Karabakh. Since 2000, I think it's 2002, there has been a waiver provision in that statute, which says the president can waive the ban on military assistance to Azerbaijan if the president thinks it's in the national interest of the United States. And every president since George W. Bush has waived that ban, including President Biden. Now, why have they done that? The presidents have said consistently that Azerbaijan can be a useful partner in the region, it's a way to monitor the Revolutionary Guard in Iran. It's a way to get weapons to Americans in Afghanistan. Now, that's no longer the case, but that was the case for quite a long time. So every president since George W. Bush has been selling hundreds of millions of dollars worth of weapons to Azerbaijan. Now the Azeris promise in return for this, they promise not to use those weapons against Armenians. But if you think about it just for a second, that's kind of silly because that just means the Azeris can use other weapons against Armenians, right? So, it, you know, it's kind of silly to say, but that has been the deal. And every president has done that. Now, President Biden, um, it's unfortunate. I, I think it goes, it goes beyond just sort of not being very helpful. So, so two weeks ago, the acting assistant secretary, Yuri Kim, testified in Congress that the United States would not tolerate violence against the Armenians of Karabakh. I mean that's um, that's a direct quote, right? We will not countenance we will not countenance this. Well, now that the ethnic cleansing has begun, President Biden has sent a letter saying, you know, we're sorry for the loss of life. He sent Samantha Power to go and take some photos, and I think the U.S. is giving $11 million. I mean, as as someone pointed out, there are restaurants in in the capital city Yerevan which are worth more than $11 million. That's really not very much money to go. Um, and so the real problem, JG, as I see it is is this is worse than doing nothing because this is drawing a red line and then and then ignoring it, which only empowers dictators more. You know that only that not only does that expose the United States to ridicule, that actually exposes the Armenians in Karabakh to worse depredation when you do something like that. So I would say it's been a long history of the United States leaning towards Azerbaijan in the conflict and now under, Under President Biden, I fear it's gotten even worse.
0: If we could stick on that for a moment, just it seems like this really is exposing a lot of hypocrisy when it comes to sort of us foreign policy
1: yeah i think so um well look so so the united states as part of its foreign policy has for some time made uh human rights a very important part of its foreign policy agenda and national self-determination a very important part of this foreign policy agenda in the 1990s the united states bombed the serbian military around sarajevo nato i guess but the united states nato is the united states um, in order to protect the Muslim population in the former Yugoslavia from depredations. That, and that was the beginning of the so-called responsibility to protect under international law. Um, the United States makes big comments about democracy delivers, right? Uh, we are supposedly fighting the Russians in Ukraine in the interests of international law and democracy. Um, and yet in Armenia, it counts for nothing. So Karabakh was uh, trying to govern itself democratically. Armenia is a democracy, Azerbaijan is a totalitarian dictatorship. They've had the same family ruling it for 30 years. Uh, I think Freedom House gives it a rating of nine out of a hundred uh, in terms of in terms of freedom, and um, doesn't doesn't uh, get in the way of U.S. azeri relationship at all. That Azerbaijan is a dictatorship and it is oppressing an ethnic minority, and uh, and that ethnic minority is in addition democratic. So you know, I, I said in that piece that you mentioned that. Uh, You know, international law and democracy and human rights, they matter only when great powers think it's in their interest for such things to matter. And they do not think it's in their interest for such things to matter in the South Caucasus. I mean, I think that's just that's rather blunt. Um, But that's my assessment of it.
0: We talk a little bit about uh, Turkey and how it plays into all of this, because I mean, I've even had some people say that Azerbaijan is almost like a, a puppet state of Turkey. Uh, how, how does the erdoğan regime uh play into all that is unfolding right now
1: well so both both the azeris and the turks i think are rather proud of it i mean they say that this is this is one nation two states right so the the azeris are turkic muslims they speak turkish they are very much part of the turkish world and president erdoğan thinks the same you know um the azeri military in 20 20- was assisted greatly by the Turkish military. I mean, the, not only in the sense of having you know, deadly Bayraktar drones, but in having special military advisors to help them plan attacks. And uh, the, the Turkish project has been for at least 100 years to build a land bridge across the Caucasus that will unite the Turkic civilization. And so you can have a Turkic civilization all the way from Istanbul to Central Asia. Uh, That was the goal in 1915. That was one of the purposes of the Armenian genocide in 1915, was to remove the sizable Armenian Christian presence which got in the way of that. And in 2020, President Erdogan of Turkey gave a speech in which he said, we are fulfilling the mission of our grandfathers in the Caucasus. So I um, I think that's really a major factor here. It is the desire of Turkey and Azerbaijan to create to create this pan-Turkic union, which has been the goal from, well, as I say, at least 100 years ago. So, you mentioned the
0: 1915 uh, genocide. I believe that was only really officially recognized by the U.S. Uh, I think a year after the 100th anniversary. I could be wrong about that. But is that is that also another issue at play here of the U.S. doesn't really want to alienate Turkey, which is a NATO member, uh, and some of these other countries.
1: Yeah, I think so. You're right. You're right. And I, I was criticizing President Biden a little while ago, and I think it's justified criticism for what's happening now. I will give him credit. He uh, he did officially recognize the Armenian genocide in 2021. You're correct about that. Um, so it wasn't, it was uh, several, a few years after. The, the anniversary is 2015. So a few years after that, but he did. He was the first president to do so since Ronald Reagan, who also did that uh, in the 1980s, said something about it. Um, so I want to give him credit for that. In terms of how this all plays in, look, I, I think it's it's very easy to just focus on what's been happening in the last month or the last three years or the last three decades. But in my opinion, this, as I said a second ago, this has been part of a grand strategy for quite some time, which is very openly discussed. Uh, it's not something that's being hidden. Uh, and I think it's continuing now. I, I mean, I think that is the plan. So, you know, now uh, Karabakh is gone. Um, you know, maybe a few Armenians will stay there because they can't get out. And I suppose the Azeris can build a kind of Potemkin village and show people, look, you know, the happy happy villagers. I don't know. Um, but that's not the end of the matter because because Turkey and Azerbaijan are already claiming a sovereign corridor across southern Armenia to be able to connect Nakhchivan Turkey, Nagorno-Karabakh, and Azerbaijan, right across Armenia. Um, the government of Azerbaijan, I'm not talking about private citizens, the government of Azerbaijan refers to Armenia as Western Azerbaijan, which is a country that has never existed. Uh, they have claims to all of that territory. So we shouldn't be surprised if in another little while, there's another attack on Armenia to do this. So, So this history is not just history. Right. Um, I forget who was it, Faulkner, who said that it's not even past, Right. The, the thing about history. And so, right. This is this is continuing right now.
0: So the other thing I keep hearing, and it, it kind of annoyed me when I heard this, uh, I've heard people saying we could have never seen this coming. And I, I take a lot of offense to that because, I mean, even if you were paying attention uh, like two weeks ago, you could see Azeri media uh, claiming Armenia proper as Western Bajan. You know, I was seeing uh, a Zeri broadcast saying that, and it just felt like it was in the air that things were about to get very bad. Um, what do you say to the people that said, you know, oh, we couldn't have seen this one coming?
1: Well, I, I find that hard to credit because uh, I think, as you say, even a casual observer could see what was happening. I mean, there, was a, there were lots of Lots of planes carrying in weapons from Israel in the last couple of months. There had been a choking off of the region for for nine months. And in the last month, they had really stopped everything coming in. That is, the Azeris stopped everything coming in. Um, They were making menacing comments all along. I think think it's two things, J.G. I think for the people who were in a position to know, they knew and just didn't want to know. Um, I think... It's sad to say that the ethnic cleansing of Karabakh actually serves a lot of interests. I mean, it serves the Russian interest. I already explained that, which is, you know, getting rid of the pro-Western government in Armenia. It serves Turkey and Azerbaijan's interests. I've already explained that. But it also serves the Western interest. It serves the interests of the U.S. and the EU, because now they've eliminated a difficult moral quandary. And now they can get on with the business of currying favor with Turkey and Azerbaijan, which they very much want to do. These countries have a lot to offer the West. Armenia really doesn't, at least from the Western perspective. So one thing is, it's just very hard to credit that people didn't see this coming, the people who were in a position to know. As for the rest of the world, well, Armenians were trying very hard to get the major news organizations to focus on this, but they didn't. And here the problem is, You know, the South Caucasus is far away. People don't know very much about it. It's not in the center of Europe the way Ukraine is. Uh, It doesn't have that immediate purchase on the Western imagination. It's just far away. And so people just don't focus on things which are very far away. Now, I don't think that's the the second of these two things. I don't think it's hypocrisy necessarily. It's just people don't focus on these things. For the people who are claiming, hey, we didn't see this coming, if they're government actors, as again, I I think it's very hard to credit uh, when they say we just didn't see this coming. Since you
0: mentioned Israel, I was curious. I've seen a few articles um, in various Israeli publications talking uh, about this. Uh, So Israel, for people that don't know, is a pretty important arms exporter to Azerbaijan. Uh, How do they sort of play into all of this?
1: Well, just as you say, I think they are they are a very uh, large arms exporter to Azerbaijan. Why? I think again, this is all real politique. You know, I, this is this has nothing to do with you know sympathy or something. Um, first of all, Israel would like a source of oil outside the Persian Gulf, and so it has that through Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan gives sells oil, and second, Azerbaijan has a border with Iran, and Azerbaijan also, by the way, claims parts of Iran. But more to the point. Uh, Azerbaijan can supply bases so you can listen in, so you can keep an eye on what's going on, and also a potential threat, a second front that would open up if Iran ever tries to cause serious trouble to Israel in the Middle East. This would be a second front. So it's a, it's a marriage of convenience, I think. But yes, Israel has been very heavily supporting Azerbaijan militarily.
0: I mean, the horrible thing about this is that you know Armenia and the Armenian people just seem to constantly be caught in the middle of warring powers. I think you write uh, at the end of your article, you say, all this is very bad news for Armenia and Armenians, who for millennia have lived in the uncomfortable space between great empires, Roman and Persian, Arab and Mongol, Ottoman and Tsarist, and now NATO and Russia. Uh, could you expand on that a little bit?
1: Sure. Well, you know, Armenian history is very long. Armenian history goes back thousands of years, like 3,000 years. And And if you look at Armenian history, so Armenia is kind of in a tough neighborhood. It's at the crossroads of a lot of different civilizations. And so historically, Armenia, I guess you might think like Ukraine in a way, or like Poland, is always caught in the middle of, of much greater powers. So you know first there was Rome and, and Persia in ancient times, coming up into late antiquity, it was Byzantine Rome and Persia. Armenians were caught in the middle of those struggles. Indeed, one of the great Armenian epics from the 5th century, the epic of St. Vartan, uh, is a, a situation where the Armenians were kind of being ground down between the Byzantines and the Persians. And uh, St. Vartan is a great Armenian national hero who stands up to the Persians and loses, loses terribly. But uh, nonetheless, the Armenian people are able to regroup and go on. That's, that's, that's uh, whatever, 1,700 years ago. And then it's the Arabs and the Mongols who are fighting among themselves. And then it is The Ottoman Empire and the Tsarist Empire are fighting over it. Armenians have been subject to forced deportations throughout their history. Um, Somehow they managed to hang on. And uh, I say in that same piece, you know, Armenia is the world's first Christian nation. And quite apart from any metaphysical claim, that has been a strong cultural identity for for hundreds and thousands of years, almost 2,000 years now. And um, that has kept the Armenian community together as, as an identifiable nation, sometimes with a state, sometimes without a state. Um, and I, I think if you look at the big sweep of Armenian history, this is another example of being caught in the middle among great empires. Um, you know, as, as an Armenian myself, I have to have faith that we will, Armenians will somehow get through this period too. And that this is just one of the many dark periods that we managed to survive. I certainly hope so.
0: I wanted to ask you as well, I mean, for me, this is just, it, it's the humanitarian issue that we're seeing. It's a human rights issue. But I think sometimes people look at this conflict that has happened um, with nagorno Karabakh. I, I think they view it as like a a, a sort of clash of civilizations or a, a Christian versus um, Islam uh, type thing. What do you think about, about the religious angle is basically what I'm getting at, because I, yeah. I try to... I don't like to make generalizations about religion. And I think this is ultimately a human rights issue at heart, but maybe you could speak to the religious aspect of all this.
1: Sure. Well, the first thing I'd say is, of course, Christians have human rights too. And you know, we we in America, because Christians are the majority, and because in the West, Christians have often persecuted non-Christians, we tend to think of Christians as the dominant power. But that's not the case everywhere in the world. And it is certainly not the case in that part of the world. And so I would say the first thing I'd say is, well. It's a Christian issue and a human rights issue. I mean, Christians have human rights too. But um, to to get to your point, look, I don't think this is a religious conflict per se. Um, uh, I don't think it's because Armenians are Christians and, and the Azeris and Turks are Muslims per se, but I think it would be wrong also to say that religion has nothing to do with it because religion is not only a matter of metaphysical belief, it's a matter of cultural identity. And the Armenians are a large non-Muslim group in the middle of this territory. And um, neither Turkey nor Azerbaijan is comfortable with that. Now, I think they'd be comfortable, as I said a little while ago, if you have a couple of churches here and there and there's hardly anyone left, it's almost like a museum piece. So, all right, that's okay, that doesn't threaten anybody. But but a sizable community that's that's kind of in the way of your project, that's a big issue. And so to that extent, again, I would I would say I, I don't want to mislead anybody. I don't think this is a religious conflict, but religion is part of it, too. Are there any points we haven't
0: covered yet that you think are important uh, for my audiences to understand or any, I guess, what's what's the misinformation or disinformation that's been floating around that you think needs the most pushing back on?
1: Well, I think what you said in the beginning, I mean, this the uh, two things I would say. I guess I'd say two things. One is the thing you said in the beginning, and one is the thing we just said now. So the thing in the beginning is, uh, look, the idea that Armenia is simply a satellite of Russia so the West can write it off, I think is not true to reality. And I think a bit unfair, given how hard Armenia has been trying to open up to the West in the last five, six years. You know, And by the way, there are people in Armenia who would say, see, this is the problem. It's just like Saakashvili in 2008 when Georgia tried to open up in the West and Russia crushed it. Or just like Ukraine, you see, we should never have tried to do this. So right. um, there's that
0: idea of well, you can never trust the U.S. Absolutely, yeah.
1: you can never trust the U.S. And see what happened. You people let us down this path. And look, there is some of that sentiment in Armenia. So, um, but the first thing I'd say is I think from the point of view of the West, it's 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 a incorrect and b unfair to just criticize Armenia for this when Armenia has been trying to to diversify and the West hasn't really responded terribly much because the West has other interests there. And the second thing I'd say is in the last thing, you know, so Christians have human rights too. And Armenians are on Mideast Christians. You know, they are they are largely Armenian Orthodox. They are not Catholics. They are not Protestants. And so they don't really fit into how American Christians see things. And I have to say, I've been somewhat disappointed with the response of Christian groups, because you would expect a little bit more sympathy, hard work, activism. There are some Christian groups that have been doing it. You know, I,
0: Trump, I was going to say I'm surprised by that, because the, the people I've seen covering it the most are I would say uh, sort of Christian or Catholic publications like uh, First Things, which I think you've written for But good, go on.
1: There have been. No, absolutely. I was going to say I was starting to say there are Christian groups that are doing this. But by and large, there hasn't been a mass kind of turnout for this. And uh, and and the left also, by the way, the kind of secular left also hasn't gotten terribly involved. And the way I like to think of it is East Christians in America. They are too East for the right and too Christian for the left. And so they kind of fall between the cracks. They don't really have a natural constituency that's going to advocate for them. There are some Christians who are, but but not as many as I might have thought. And so that's the second thing I'd like to leave the listeners with, which is, you know, many Christians have human rights too. It's not like you can just ignore them because they don't fit into exactly how you perceive uh, these things in the West.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the left's response or lack of it. Uh, The only, I, I mean, I've seen... Jacobin uh, had a piece about it recently that I think you retweeted. Uh, I think it's important to drive that home that this is not I mean, to me, it's not just a um, an issue about, you know, Christians. This is I mean, to me, like I said, it's a human rights issue and it's a self-determination issue. And I do think whether you're a Christian or whether you're a secular leftist, this should be of uh, great concern.
1: I agree with that. I, I don't I have no objection to that. I think that's right. I, I mean the point I'm making is that I think just as a matter of practical politics, you know, Mideast Christians don't have a natural constituency because I think candidly, many on the right think Mid-East, okay, we're just we don't know too much about that. Also, there's a very strong evangelical identification with Israel, which I think, you know, once many event once many evangelicals hear that Israel's on the other side of the conflict, they kind of know where they stand, right? That's one thing. But secondly, on the left, I think the left is not particularly interested in, in going out and, and, and advocating for Christians because they kind of code Christians differently. So And, and Armenians are not the only group like this. There are also the Iraqi Chaldean Christians. There are the Syriac Christians. There are the Copts in Egypt. There are many ancient Christian communities which don't fit into the narrative that we have of Christianity in the West, and I think they suffer as a result. As I said, too Mideast for the right too Christian for the left a lot of times.
0: What is going to be happening to the people fleeing now? I, I mean, w- what are the latest updates we have on this? And I mean, is it fair to at this point, I mean, this is an ethnic cleansing. I mean, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, Azari sort of uh, aligned account say, oh, this isn't an ethnic cleansing. I mean, I think at this point, it's fair to call it that.
1: I think it is an ethnic cleansing. Look, as I understand it, the Azeri position is we're not telling these people to leave. But for 30 years, you've been teaching kids in your school that Armenians are subhuman. And your government officials for 30 years have been saying Armenians are you know, a cancer, or recently I, you know, are a cancer that need to be removed. So, And in the places where Azeris have had have had control of Armenian churches and monuments, they've destroyed them. Or they have removed Armenian inscriptions and repurposed them as Albanian, Caucasian Albanian, which is a, a, a you know, a, a polity that has not existed for 800 years. So Armenians kind of know what's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's silly to say that we're not asking them to leave. They, of course they have to. Of course they have to leave. As far as what's happening to them, they've now come across the border to Armenia. The Armenians, from what I can tell, reading their press reports, have been very receptive. People are going out with food and trying to welcome these people and set them up. Uh, in various regions in Armenia. But look, Armenia is a poor country, too. So I think the least least that the West can do is at least give substantial money to help resettle these people. Um, uh, So the short of it is, at the moment, they're being resettled in Armenia. Some of the people will stay there. I'm sure some will try to get a better life somewhere else if they can.
0: If you were able to speak to, you know, the Biden administration or advise them on this, I mean, a hypothetical here, but... What would you be telling the, the folks in D.C.?
1: Well, of course, they're not, they're not asking me. Right. But but first thing I first thing I would say is, you know, please don't raise hopes and then dash them. Please don't have your assistant secretary of state say this will not be tolerated when you know full well you will tolerate it and you do tolerate it. Right. Because that just that makes life more difficult for the victims of, of ethnic cleansing. Number one. Number two, I would say, you know, you said you didn't see this coming. Well, please don't say that when Turkey and Azerbaijan decide to invade Armenia itself and just take over what's left of the country, because they are telegraphing that right now. So if you want to do something to stop it, now is the time. Now is to really get tough and say, okay, sanctions, well, this we will, you know, and and I'm sure many of your listeners are thinking, well, here's someone who wants America involved in another foreign war. No, I don't. But we don't have to keep giving weapons to Azerbaijan to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. We can sanction azerbaijan and sanction the Aliyev family for doing this kind of thing and we can make it plain there will really be consequences if you if you invade armenia that's the second thing i would say whether the biden administration has any interest in doing those things i don't know i think because that... you know why if i i'm sorry jg it occurs to me a lot of this is about plausible deniability too because at some point historians will look back on this and they'll say As Samantha Power, she is herself a historian. She knows all about genocide and ethnic cleansing. I mean, she wrote a whole
0: book about it, The Problem from Hell. Yeah, right.
1: She won a Pulitzer Prize. And at some point, someone's going to look back on what people like her and authority did here. And part of it, I think, is kind of making a record, right? Well, we didn't know. You can't blame us. The worst you can say is we were kind of dumb. We didn't know. So um, I think a lot of what goes on in that sense is, you know, trying to cover themselves. I hope they don't do it again uh, with respect to Armenia itself.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the the Samantha Power thing there is interesting because, I mean, she's pushed this responsibility to protect doctrine, you know, and I know a lot of people, they get angry about that doctrine because they say, oh, it can be used to get us involved in all these foreign wars. But I mean, it's interesting if we're going to be pro-responsibility to protect, I don't know how you can't get involved in you know the current situation with Armenia.
1: well and that explains that explains the the pattern which is okay well there's nothing to protect her we didn't see it coming we didn't know we had to do anything and okay the worst you can say is we missed it right um because i understand that and and i must say i have some sympathy with that position the united states can't get involved everywhere but again i'm not saying you know send in troops or you know things like that um But I might also say then let's not talk about the responsibility to protect any longer. Let's just be honest and say sometimes we think it is in the national security interest of the US to get involved, and sometimes we don't. And let's not, you know, throw in the base alloy of hypocrisy like Abraham Lincoln said. Let's not, you know, let's not dress this up like we care about democracy when we quite evidently don't.
0: Right. Let's not not pretend Or,
1: or not enough. Not enough. So then let's not pretend about this.
0: Uh, Can you talk a little bit about, I I guess there's been some developments with uh, people serving jail time now. Uh, The Baku court, I think, ordered jail time for Ruben Vardanyan, uh, who is the former state minister of Artsakh. Uh, What is happening with uh, that and and anything else regarding uh, uh, Azeri actions towards these Armenians?
1: Right. So, well, Ruben Vartanyan, yes, he was the state minister of Artsakh. But you have to understand, before that, he was one of the international human rights good guys. He actually set up a humanitarian foundation called the Aurora Foundation, uh, which gives out a prize every year to people who support international human rights. He was a Russian citizen who gave up his Russian citizenship, went back to Karabakh, where his family is from, um, and tried to you know help as best he could. He was state minister for a while. Um, The Azeris have now arrested him. They've charged him with financing terrorism and various other anti-state activities. Um, I'm sure we'll hear more about other arrests of of high-profile Karabakhsi leaders, too. Um, I mean, I would hope the international human rights community, you know, with whom Ruben Bartanyan was collaborating all these years, I hope they can have some impact with Azerbaijan. Um, I just don't know. It remains to be seen. He's in prison right now. You're right.
0: Uh, before we close out, uh, and I know we've gone a, a few minutes over, but um, what is your hope for these Armenians that are fleeing right now? Uh, and, you know, will will the Armenian people persevere through this? I mean, it, it seems to just be constant persecution over, you know, I mean, going back to 1915 at least. Uh, so I don't know how... The Armenians persevere, but hats off.
1: Well, thank you. Look, I I can't speak for them. They're the ones who are suffering. So I'm in America today because my ancestors were forced out of Armenia at other times in history. And, you know, all around the world, I mean, there are Armenian communities in Australia, in India, in Singapore, in everywhere, right? Because of of waves of persecution over the centuries. And yet Armenians have also kept an identifiable community in this region for 3,000 years. Look, um, uh, will it survive? I mean, as I said a little while ago, I have to hope so. I mean, that's the way you have to bet. Um, I would say, look, I'm sure all your listeners don't agree with this. I would say with God's help, hopefully this this nation will survive. It has always survived till now, but it's going to be difficult. Now, as for these Armenians themselves, I said a little while ago, they, they have been repatriated to Armenia. I'm sure some will stay there and restart their lives. Um, and some will do what people like my ancestors did hundreds and odd years ago. They will they will leave and go somewhere else.
0: A few more things that I just thought of uh, off the top of my head. Um, we mentioned mainstream media coverage. How much of I mean, I know this is speculative, but how much of the media coverage in the U.S. is, you know, affected by uh, lobbying efforts on the part of Azerbaijan?
1: Well, we hear a lot about it. I mean, you've heard uh, there was a, a Guardian expose of what they called caviar diplomacy on the part of Azerbaijan, in which billions of dollars have been pumped out, and Azerbaijan has billions of dollars to spend because it's a it's a you know a petrostate. So they have been lobbying very heavily, and uh, not only politicians but journalists, think tank leaders, academics. I mean, I'm an academic. I happen to know of some of these activities in universities, um, and they've been very successful in doing that. Now, um, I, I cannot imagine that has not had an effect on, on coverage of these issues. But I think also, as I said a little while ago, this is the Caucasus is far away. We don't know very much about it. It's not central to our daily life. So I think it's a combination of those things, probably. It's probably, it's probably money and lobbying and, and nice trips and caviar and things like that. Uh, and it's probably also this is just very far away and we're not focused on it. Oh, and by the way, not just journalism. Definitely, even, I said a second ago, even politicians. I mean, there's been a lot of evidence that a lot of European politicians are on the take. Could you speak to that a little bit more? Do you have any examples or? Well, I mean, again, I would refer people to that Guardian, uh, the Guardian article from a couple of years ago about caviar diplomacy, which goes through it in much more detail than I would go through here.
0: Closing out here, what I want to ask you is, what are the risks for the future when it comes to Armenians?
1: Well, one risk is that... uh, one very serious risk is that Armenia doesn't survive as an independent state that it's you know absorbed back into Russia somehow or it just gets divided up between Russia and Turkey the way the way Armenia was 100 years ago after World War I after World War One, there was a sovereign Armenia which was supported by the United States at least initially but then the US lost interest and didn't take a man didn't take the League of Nations mandate and Russia and Turkey divided it up that could happen again I mean, I hate to think about that, but that's a possibility, in which case Armenians would be once again, as so often in their history, a nation without a state. But the other possibility is Armenia is somehow able to balance its dependence on Russia, Russia's not going away, with new security partnerships, perhaps India, you know, India sold reportedly half a billion dollars worth of military to Armenia recently. India might be a really good partner for Armenia because India doesn't threaten Russia quite so much. Um, so the other possibility is Armenia will be able to somehow balance Russia with outside powers and do something along the lines of Georgia perhaps, somehow try to find a way to get through the situation with while being sort of a balancing, that would be, in my opinion, that would be the kind of best solution for Armenia. Um, the worst solution would be Armenia disappears again and has to go through a period of being a stateless nation, but let's let's hope that doesn't happen.
0: I want to let you get go,ing Mark, uh, but how can my listeners keep up with your work? And uh, is there any sources you would recommend? Resources you would recommend for for listeners that I have that are getting more interested in this topic?
1: Well, yes. Uh, now, the English language sources are not English language sources are not as uh, as prominent or not as prevalent as others. But I would recommend CivilNet. CivilNet is uh, an English language broadcasting. A corporation from Armenia, and you know, uh, my impression has always been they play it straight. And if you listen to their commentary, that's a kind of good place to get started in English, learning about what's going on. Uh, you know, some people say CivilNet has a pro-Western bias. I've not found that. I have found it to be much more kind of they play it straight and they do it in English, and that's a good place to go. And they don't they don't promote me, by the way. That's not uh, I'm not I don't write for CivilNet, so that's that's I'm just saying that's that's where I go and I want to learn about these things.
0: And you're also on Twitter or X or whatever it's As being called me, today. As
1: for yes. Yeah, I still call it Twitter. As for me, yes, I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at Mark Mofsessian. That's my handle. I also am the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's Law School in New York. And you can also follow our feed there.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed or at least found enlightening. It's, it's hard to say you can enjoy a conversation about such a... Uh, depressing topic but I I hope that you found enlightening the conversation with Mark Movzevsian. as always if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews one more time that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews and with that being said until next time You've been listening to Parallax Views with J.J. Michael. Views. To Parallax Views with J.J. Michael. 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 The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. Right? So, you know, we have to confront
1: the problem.